Bring flowers of the fairest, bring blossoms the rarest, from garden and woodland and hillside and dale. Our full hearts are swelling, our glad voices telling the praise of the loveliest flower of the vale. Kappa Hospital lay some way to the northwest of Dublin City, on the edge of a village called Finglas. The patients at Kappa were children whose bones were infected by a form of tuberculosis caused by drinking milk from the carrier cows. In my childhood, the milkman came to our house twice a day to fill our jugs with milk that was frothy and often still warm from the udder. I drank the rich, creamy liquid at every meal, encouraged by my mother, who never for a moment doubted that milk was the fount of all nourishment, especially at a time when other foods were in short supply. Thus we children of Kappa were, in the main, victims of that form of the disease which attacked the bones and joints. Many of us spent years confined to bed, strapped onto padded iron frames which held us in fixed position. We lay in the open air waiting for the disease to burn itself out, then had to learn to use our limbs again, or more likely, to adapt our movements to the constrictions of a fused, useless joint. Queen of the angels and queen of the May. I've got a lump in my throat, you know. It's very emotional reading it again. I haven't read it for a long time. Is that all right? I arrived in Kappa by ambulance one day in early spring, soon after my seventh birthday. I was put lying on a trolley and wheeled down long corridors to a ward called Blessed Imelda's. From the back of the empty ward, I looked with growing apprehension at the rows of beds outside on the veranda and tried to hold on to the fast-fading belief that I would as Mummy kept saying, be back at home in no time at all. We're at the gates of Kappa and I'm looking at the trees and thinking they must all have been there when I was a little girl. And I remember trees, I remember tall trees and they were full of crows and they used to fly out making a heck of a racket, especially when we were supposed to be quiet when there was a mass going on, on the altar. And... That's the memory that comes to me now as I visit all these years later. I'm trying to think what it must have been like for the visitors. They used to walk up from the gates and we would be straining to see them from the verandas. They came up in a bunch from the, from the bus and then they would spread out along the verandas, find their own patients. And it must have been very hard for some of the children because some of them didn't have visitors very often because the patients came from all over Ireland and it would have been difficult travelling. And some of them also were from very poor families whose families couldn't afford the journey. I was lucky because I came from the south side of Dublin and I had regular visits from my father and my brother. We started our lives as English children, my brother Paul and I, coming with our parents to live in Sandy Cove when I was four years old and my brother nine. For my father, it meant promotion. My mother was very pretty, and she dressed, someone once said, with the languid elegance of a duchess. She set out to be the great asset to her husband by making a big impact on social occasions. But in her heart, she found it hard to settle. Although completely Irish, she had lived in England for most of her life, and in almost every way that mattered to her, 
she found Dublin sadly wanting. We lived in Balagine Avenue in Sandy Cove, which was a lovely spot. I mean, today it's just fabulous. Um, but we never bought, he never bought a house because he always thought he was only on loan, that he would go back to England when the factory was built. And when I think back how often I heard him say, I'm only on loan here, I'll be going back to England, we'll be going back to England. And I grew up feeling that that was the way it would be. And then I got... Um, this TB hip. Now we're parked in front of the, the main building and I can see that there are no open verandas here anymore but the altar is there just as big and dominant as it always was. I'm talking about 1939 when I first came here as a patient. It was just at the outbreak of the Second World War and there were um, restrictions in transport, in food, in, in lots of ways. Life was becoming very difficult for people. And um, now I'm here in 2009, in the latter part of my life, and it, it's a very strange feeling to be trying to marry up those old days of my childhood with my memories and and the reality of what I see now, because it's now, I think, a very advanced hospital um, in modern surgery. And so it's, it's difficult to, to realise that it was once an open-air sanatorium where we lay out in the, in the open air most of the year. I was sent to a private school and I used to walk home on my own, although I was only a little girl, between five and six, about six years old, I think. And I was walking home from school and my leg kept collapsing under me and it was terribly painful. And I didn't know how I was going to get home. And the problem came when I came to a main road that had to be crossed and there were trams, there were tram lines... And I stood there for ages and there were two men coming out of a pub and I had to say, I can't get across the road. And they carried me. They carried me across the road and down the avenue. And I remember that they were very embarrassed because they'd just come out of the pub and they were kind of laughing that this child with a rather posh accent said, excuse me, but do you mind carrying me home, you know? And um, and then my mother, of course, she was ashen-faced when she saw me and I, I have a memory whether it's false or not of this terrible realization suddenly coming to her after weeks of saying Asha you're all right you've just got growing pains you know and neighbors used to say she's she's got I see your daughter is limping you know what's the matter and ask nothing it's only growing pains and to the day she died in her 80s that's how she dealt with anything that was unpleasant or illness of any kind. Ah, it's nothing, it's nothing. You know, She could not take on the seriousness or the need for something to be done quickly because she was terrified of hospitals and dying and um, operations, anything like that. She was a very um, rather nervous woman um, who feared, had great fears about things not being nice. 
You see, that's a good view with the, Our Lady and the altar, isn't it? In the centre of the field facing the wards, a great glass-sided altar towered over us. Thirty feet high. It housed a golden tabernacle, which could be seen for miles around. Right. Well, here's the plaque on the wall of the altar. The Eucharistic Congress Memorial Altar. Following the celebration of the Eucharist Congress in 1932, this memorial altar was transported from O'Connell Bridge and erected in Kappa Grounds in December 1932. Well, it was well ensconced by the time I got here in 1939. I suppose that altar made us feel good, made us feel very protected in a heavenly way. And just beyond, I know, there is a statue of Our Lady. We used to... That was what I used to look at and and confuse with my mother. (laughs) She was always there, right in front of the veranda. A little to the left of the altar stood a statue of Our Lady. Through a lattice arch over her head, roses climbed from the month of May. With a devoted application, we attempted to draw Our Heavenly Mother in our sketchbooks. Behind my closed eyelids, she became mine exclusively. And, in my daydreams, I put on her the face of my choice. And we used to draw her. I remember the shape of the statue that we used to draw again and again, because it was so easy. It was right in front of us. You see now that where there used to be open verandas, they're all closed in. They put me on what they called uh, a weight and pulley, where they put the, the leg up on a on a high pillar that went like that, and there's a pole at the end of the bed with holes in it, a plank thing, and so they tied up the the leg with plaster and bandage, and pulley cords at the end, and then they put the leg up, and put the cords through the hole, and then pull it tight so that I remember feeling my hip being pulled almost as if it was being dislocated. And then the, the, the weight was let go and it would swing and swing. And then I was wheeled out onto the veranda. So I mean, it, describing it makes me feel, you know, that I was being packaged for, before I was put out on the veranda, I was being made to conform with everybody else. And, of course, a lot of these little children were um, looked very um, ill and uh, unappealing, you know. How do you mean? Well, for one thing, their heads were all shorn. Their hair was all cut short like boys. And some of them had sores on their faces and, uh, and some of them had big humps on their backs. Well, you know, it's pretty awful, really. Maybe more awful now in retrospect than it was at the time, but I remember not wanting to look at anybody. Um, can you imagine being wheeled out with your lip, you know, all sort of trussed up and put in a row of of all these little children, all around the same age, six, seven, eight years old? And my parents, my mother started to cry, and Sister Finbar took her by the arm and said, not in front of the child, not to cry in front of the child. And they left. And I 
sat up to wave to them and the nurse said to me, no, you're not allowed to sit up. You have to wave to them lying down. <laughs> so there I was. And that's, that's the memory. You see now that where there used to be open verandas, they're all closed in. The wards. And to our right, of course, there was the boys. That was where the Johnnies were. And we were over there to the left, the girls starting from little babies going right up to adults at the far end of that veranda. And I would have been about in the middle because I was seven years old when I first came. What I can't understand, these verandas that we're looking at and um, now it's closed up. No, but they would have been open. So you were there summer and winter exposed to the elements. Yes, yes. Yes, it was only when there was driving rain or snow that they pulled us into the ward. And, uh, but you, you see, that wasn't there. But were you cold lying there? I don't remember being cold. The wards were L-shaped. And you had the babies in the angle of this, uh, these L-shaped wards with the boys on one leg of it and the girls on the other. And they were all they, they, their beds were all covered with red and we were all blue, so they were, the, they were in the protection of the Sacred Heart and we were all Our Lady's children. Now, said Sister Finbar, when my parents had disappeared from view, I've put you beside Pauline, who's the same age as yourself. Won't you be good to Rosemary, Pauline, and help her to settle? The girl in the next bed was as thin as a stick, and pure white. Not a spot of pinkness showed in her cheeks. Only a few pale freckles, like splashes of milky tea, were scattered across her nose. She lay crooked in her bed, as though she had been dropped on it from the sky. She was hung about with scapulars and rosary beads and medals and and terribly um, naive and easily shocked and easily worried about things. Eileen was on my left and she had... um, a problem with her spine and she came into the hospital with bright bright red hair she had and she was put on a spinal frame which meant that she was bent backwards um, until she uh, and her head was held back so that she everything she saw must have been upside down it was a hard life for little children wasn't very it very hard life oh indeed it was a very hard life for children uh, i mean i suppose of all of them i was the only one who i won't say i was spoiled but I certainly had presents and people who cared about me. Um, but even even then, it wasn't an easy life. On Thursdays, Mr. McCauley, the orthopaedic surgeon, arrived on the veranda with a group of respectful attendants. A silver-haired man of great dignity, he would screw up his face with concentration as he probed deep into a joint with his immaculate white hands. He pointed out the diseased areas, lecturing to his students in a language the patients could not understand. If an abscess was forming on a limb, Mr. Macaulay was quick to find it, and sometimes marked the spot for the first aspiration by making a cross on the bulging flesh. 
I only noticed you. I know you limp, but I only noticed your shoe now. So you've yes, always been you on my shoe. And your, it's, it was your right leg. Yeah. yeah. I, I resisted that for years because I used to love nice, tarty shoes when I was in my prime. But of course, I didn't walk so well. Um, then I, I gave in and I now have a, a lift on my shoe, which uh, is very much more comfortable. Well, that's it. You, you liked your tarty shoes? I loved my tarty shoes, yes. I did. And even now, when I see my daughters in all the lovely shoes they wear, you know, oh, I think how lovely. But I had terrible wounds. Oh, I had awful wounds. I had, um, first of all, got a big abscess on my thigh, and that's when they had to aspirate. Nearly every patient got a wound or two. These were caused by the bursting of abscesses which were formed on the diseased limbs, swelling up the flesh and causing what we called crying pain. That was bad enough, but worse by far was the treatment, the aspirating, which had to be done many times before the abscess was ready to burst open and expel the last of its poison. Aspirations were beyond crying pain, for all our energy was needed to grip the bedhead as the thick, hollow needle with the syringe attached was plunged into the heart of the swelling, and to call on the help of Jesus and Mary as the poison was drawn out. And then the syringe would be pulled and the discharge or pus used to be pulled out. I mean, cupfuls, you know. Um, And as a little girl, how would you? Oh, oh, that was one of the things we prayed for. Please don't let me get another abscess. Because, you know, they did come quite regularly. I had three in the course, uh, I know that because I have three scars, and I do remember that my my biggest prayer was about the abscesses, and or I would put my hand down and feel whether the whether there was a swelling, and I always knew when I would have to have an aspiration because somebody would come. Doctor McCauley used to come along. Oh yes, yes, that's pull up again. Take, you know, another aspiration, and I would put my hand down, and feel, and um, and pray that there wasn't any pus in there that had to be withdrawn. What would your prayer be? It would be one of these (laughs) nine-day novenas. And then one day, I put my hand down, and it came up wet, and it was blood. And that was a great cause for celebration, because when you had blood, it meant that the the poison, it wasn't the poison, it, it was, and then it would turn into a wound. And I have, I won't show you, but I have a big hole up there, and another one in there, in these, um, abscesses so this is the hospital entrance now yes now that's an original building there that's that would have been and yet it seems small you know everything seems smaller but I wonder did they keep all the nuns in there (laughs) how did they accommodate everybody is it funny? Do you think it's impossible to go back to a past? Do you feel completely different, this woman, 76, 77 to 70? I'm, I'm completely seven years. different. And when, you th- when I think how far I've come, I mean, if you take the average seven-year-old child now, they're knowing, you know, and they, they ask questions and, and they maybe say, I don't believe that. But we never did. We, we accepted everything. Just as it was taught to us, you know. Obedience. Obedience, yes. Do everything you're told. That was what Sister Finbar used to say. 
Well, we're in a rather smart entrance, which I don't think was here, certainly not in its present form. Oh, there's Mr. Macaulay. I remember him so well. He was like God. He used to come with all his entourage, and he had a real Ulster accent. Looking very amiable, actually. We saw him as a rather austere figure. Uh, He didn't often speak to us personally. He would just feel the joints and make faces and talk to Sister Finbar and and then move on. And... uh, Yeah, hi there. We're here to see Anne White, Assistant Director of Nursing. Thanks. At 7.30 every weekday morning, Sister Finbar bursts through the doors into Blessed Imelda's ward. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Children and nurses responded with one voice. O Jesus, through the most pure heart of Mary, I offer thee all the prayers, works, and sufferings, joys and pleasures of this day for all the intentions of thy sacred heart. Pacing the ward slowly, she fingered her rosary beads, her florid face unsmiling, her brilliant blue eyes never still, seeking out the smallest sign of a crisis. She would spot a septic sore or an infested head before even the sufferer was aware of it. If I see a single nit, she warned, the whole lot comes off. I carry that you were too late for Sister Finbar, of course. I don't remember Sister Finbar, no. I remember, she was our um, mother. She was our mother. Sister Trace was in the BI when I came. She was a marvellous, marvellous woman. And she was, she was like a mother to us, because we weren't seeing our own mothers, you know. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear that. That's 1974 or 5, I think. It's the thing, you know, nuns, they hadn't children of their own, so yes. I suppose it's lovely to, you know... Well, she was strict. I mean, it was yeah. a strict life, and we mm-hmm. had a very hard time, really. Mm-hmm. But we loved her, and she was, she was so loving, you know, she obviously did love the children. Mm-hmm. And then there's that wonderful portrait of Mr. Macaulay in the, in the entrance. And he right. was a very powerful figure, you know. He was, that's right. Mm-hmm. I remember all the radios had to be turned off when Mr. McCauley came right? in, and the children kind of were all sitting beside their beds, and the beds were perfectly made. And, yeah. And you had to stand with his white coat ready to, for him to slip on yes. when he came in oh, the front yes, door. Oh, yes, they were like yeah. God, weren't they? Mm-hmm. And he very seldom spoke to us personally. He'd be talking to Sister Finbar all the time, and, mm-hmm. and then they'd go off muttering and deciding what was to be done with us, and we never knew if they were going to cut our legs off, because <laughs> they never shared anything with us, you know. I'm just trying to understand the, um, the idea of putting the, the contraptions on the children. Do you know what the thinking was behind it, the medical thinking at that time? The frames. It was largely, to, we'd say, to rest the joint. You know, if the joint had become soft or diseased in any way, by, by holding the leg in a certain position, you stopped the, the surfaces from rubbing off each other, and I suppose it lessened the risk of it get, becoming misshapen and... Yeah, needing that, that's, surgery. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, if we just take a look in here, Rosemary, I have a feeling that you know this would have been an example of one of the open rooms. We'd say that with you know beds all yes. around the walls. Well, this and would have been on the boys' side because that's the girls' veranda over there. Yeah. This would have been the doorway. Yes. And that's the veranda. the veranda. Yes. And we covered it in, obviously. Yes. When we didn't need it open anymore. But yes. So just by stepping over over the threshold, going here, out onto the veranda. On the veranda. Yeah. Yes. And this is the boys' veranda, and we used to see them all out there, the Johnnies. 
and they had red covers on their beds with the Sacred Heart and we had blue because we were Our Lady's little children, you see. And were you ever allowed to mix or play Not or anything? Not at all. No. If we were up out of bed, which we weren't, of course, for a long, long time, you might wander over a bit and the boys would be whistling at us and waving. As boys do. But they, they were a mystery, you know. Mm-hmm. No, we never, never... Unless we went... Sometime would be put beside a boy's bed if we went to the X-ray department, you know, and you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. You'd be too shy to talk. In a cleared space on the veranda, we first communicants lay side by side, outstanding our beauty and our saintliness. We were dressed in beautiful white gowns and veils, which were anchored somehow to our heads by wreaths of waxen flowers, and spread out over our pillows. Our bedheads, too, were draped with veiling, with small posies of flowers pinned here and there, so that each little bed looked like a little shrine, with ourselves in the middle, like holy statues. That's the name of the old hymn, you know, Flowers of the Fairs. Yes, that's right. The May. Do you remember um, the May, first May. of May? Yes. Gay Byrne played it every first of May. And that's what we May. thought we were, Flowers yeah. of the Fairs. But you weren't you? We were. Well, God love you. Little saints. Yeah. Yes. You were. I remember, actually, um, when I was in a little bit more than senior infants, I think the class above senior infants, and um, one of the nuns kind of, you know, teaching and sort of saying, and if your mother died and she was looking down to he- from heaven on you and you were suffering and in pain... How would she feel? Yes, that's and the kind, exactly the image. Yes, yeah, and the answer was, she'd be happy that you were getting your suffering over on this earth. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. That's that fits exactly. That was why we felt so smug and privileged, you know. Oh, right. for getting it all out of the way. Yeah. And were you? Well, I can only say that Sister Finbar and all the nurses. They all had religion very much in their um, dealing with the children. And they'd say, you'll be grand, please God. And um, say a prayer to Saint somebody or say a novena to Our Lady. And they would give us holy pictures. And, you know, we used to say novenas. And you, you would state your wish. Please God, let me be better. Let me get off my frame. Um, you could say these same prayer every night for nine days and you were promised that you would get an answer to your prayer even if the answer was no (laughs) so I became very religious and believed absolutely that I was a chosen child did you? yes how could I not? I mean I was there and all the other children did too and we would swap holy pictures and and we wore loads of medals you know miraculous medals medals to this saint and that saint you know and um you must have been such a bunch well <laughs> you can say that again we were a right little innocent bunch of little naughty little saints you know again you're going to see this the verandas here as well because I think the view was very important for you, Rosemary, because the view was that's everything. what you... Yes. Oh, yeah, so let's try years. that then. Let's, um, you know, if, if you come over here and look out, Rosemary, what's, what's the memory? My memory standing here now 
is of the crows flying out of the trees in the morning and then back in the evening we used to think they'd going off to school and coming back in the evening. And then we had Our Lady there, who I used to confuse with my mother, because I had a, a, a pact with my mother that I would think about her every evening at 7 o'clock. It was her idea that we should commune. And after the prayers, I used to keep my eyes closed and think about my mother. And as time went on, I, I more or less forgot what she looked like, you know, and, uh, and I used to see her on the statue. I'd close my eyes and I'd see my mother draped rather like that and holding her arms out to me and um, I used to dream about her um, not quite knowing what she was like and then when she eventually did come to see me because I didn't see her for months and months and months and then she had a baby and the baby was brought out to visit me and in a chauffeur driven car which my uncle laid on carried the baby in and my mother was she had bright red lipstick and she was wearing a, a red velvet hat thing on her head and a scarf and I mean she was less like Our Lady than anything you could imagine In the dead of night the field was navy blue the altar a huge darker shadow against the starry sky Out in the darkness an unusual glow caught my eye It was like a street lamp in a fog and it hovered over the spot where the Immaculate Conception stood The light then formed itself into a silver ring, a halo, and under it, a face appeared, the face of my heavenly mother, every feature clear and dearly familiar. Her lips were moving, but I could hear no words. As the mist rolled back and her body became visible, she raised her two arms as if to call me over. Come, she seemed to be saying, come to me. And then a long time afterwards, when my sister was born and she brought the baby out to see me, she came in a red velvet turban on her head and a scarf to match, and she had very red lips and huge breasts because she was breastfeeding. And that was a shock that I don't think I ever really got over that because she had changed from this wonderful, loving mother almost heavenly, into something very brash and something that really shocked me when I first saw her after all that time. I looked down and saw that my arms had changed into white wings. I rose up slowly from my bed, shaking off my bonds like an ascending bird. Then I was flying like Peter Pan, my nightdress flapping against my legs out over the fields and carried by the wind across Dublin Bay with its white dancing waves and a semicircle of diamond lights far below me. Which way? Which way? I cried. I flew on, skimming across the dark waters, then soaring upwards into the night sky, trying to reach that one light that was brighter than all the others, but which never seemed to get any closer. I woke up with tears on my face. I will leave you so if that's All okay. Right. Are you happy enough oh, to? Very happy. I'll just say to the girls that you're going to need this room for a little while and there won't be any yes. problem. Well, it's it, been lovely know? to meet you and thank you very and much you for all you've put in. No, no, it's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Okay. And thank you very lovely. much. Lovely. Okay. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. There's the sunshine. She's a lovely woman, isn't she? 
I had been in Kappa for more than two years by the time my prayers were answered. Quite right, Sister Finbar. The leg is clean, Mr. Macaulay announced one day. And I see no sign of any other abscess. I watched his face screw up as he probed his fingers into my joints and gently pressed down on my thigh and was so surprised by the next words that I felt no immediate excitement. I think we could have her off the frame for a wee while in the afternoons, he said, as if it was a quite ordinary decision. What do you think, sister? The bar nodded her head vigorously. We'll send her down to the gym to get the legs moving, she said. Did I really hear that? Or was it my imagination? Is it true? I asked the bar when she came back, still smiling. Of course it is. Didn't I tell you all along the day would come? I will telephone your daddy as soon as I have a minute and give him the news. Fell short. Sorry, you said it fell short. Well, everything, anything that you look forward to unreservedly like that is bound to fall a bit short, isn't it? You know, because we're human and we have fluctuating feelings about things. Evening crept along the veranda. The sun fell behind the convent. Shouts became murmurs. Restless movements slowed down. Bored now, we turned our attention to a pile of old comics that we had read many times before, the best that could be found in Eileen's locker. In the fading light, we read them yet again, holding them close to our screwed-up eyes. The ambulance came noisily through the gates, its headlamps dim and short-sighted, Turning to us, Sister Finbar spread her arms wide over our heads. Shake hands now, the three of you, she said. You have been together a long time. Quietly we spoke our goodbyes. Eileen, Pauline and myself, Rosemary, no longer in the middle. As our hands met limply, our eyes dropped downwards in a sudden shyness. You will meet again, please God, Sister Finbar said. This is not the end. Did you ever see them again? No. They didn't continue in my life at all. It's a class thing, you know. I went back to my Sandy Cove life and um, everything changed. Not necessarily for the better, of course. I missed them. It took me a long time to, to find a personality and, you know, and kind of hold my own in school and all that. It was very difficult. The nurses were in great humour as they unbuckled all my straps. They said it was a good feeling for them as well to be releasing patients instead of always having to tie them down. How long have you been here now? They asked. Two years and three months, I told them. Yes, well, when the ambulance arrived home at my home and I walked in and I sat, tried to sit on the sofa and I couldn't cope with sitting on the sofa because I had this plaster all on my, you know, keeping me rigid and um, they had to lift me up out of the sofa and I had to sit on a a straight dining chair and I was smiling all the time, smiling because and I felt terrified and miserable and um, I tried to eat, there was a lovely table laid out with the best china and, and cake and everything and and I couldn't, couldn't enjoy anything. And later, I was throwing up food all the time. And uh, 
But it must be just leaving here. I think it was definitely a neurotic thing, yes. Fright, really. I mean, it was really very frightening coming out of an institution. Anybody coming out of an institution after a long time would feel um, disoriented, um, not quite knowing how to behave, and, and wanting so badly to please everyone and being afraid that you might do something that would displease them. That was <laughs> really the way it was. And uh, I missed this place terribly, and lying in this little bedroom at home and not knowing what to do, because I was so used to only doing what I was told to do. Uh, and then the door opened, and this young woman looked in, and she was the, the cleaner who used to help my mother... And she came in and she spoke to me very gently and she gave me a miraculous medal. And I was so pleased to see her because she was much more like the, the maids that I knew in Kappa and, pe- you know, the, the religious people. And, um, and I remember saying to her, do you come here every day? And she said, no, only once a week. And I felt very disappointed about that. And then it was almost like your mother wanted you to forget about all that, didn't she? Well, much later in life, of course, when, when she talked about the lovely childhood I had, because we lived in Sandy Cove, and it was very, a very lovely place to live, and there was a little harbour there, and, and my mother was saying, oh, you had such a lovely childhood. And I used to get impatient with her, and I said to her, well, it might have been lovely for the rest of the family, but for much of the time I wasn't there. And so because she, she didn't want to face up to it herself, she'd say, you've got to forget about all that. Put it, put it out of your mind. You got on with your life. Look at the lovely things you did later, and you don't have to dwell on that. But I had a feeling inside that I did need to dwell on it because it was my childhood. One of them lifted me up, clear off the bed, saying I was as light as a feather out of my frame. The other nurse pulled the frame out from under me. I looked with shame and disgust at the padded saddle on which I had lain for so long. It was worn bare in places, nearly through to the horsehair stuffing. The waterproof cover was stained and discoloured and had a bad smell. It stood there for all to see, like a corpse without a head. It was my childhood and I resented her for not acknowledging that as a real experience. And, but I could see that it upset her, so I didn't rub it in. And I only started writing about it after she died, well into my 60s, um, always based on the fact that she wanted me to forget. My bare, stripped legs were raw, like a pair of skinned rabbits, and nearly as helpless. I reached down to touch the flaky skin that had for so long been hidden from my view. I stroked it and gently scratched the bits that I was able to reach until the flesh tingled and burned and patches of dead skin loosened around the edges. As my nails drew blood, a fit of fear took hold of me and I realised the damage I might do. For all the progress they said my leg was making, the best I had to show after all this time was a weak and useless stick of a thing that would never be the match of the good one. I don't dwell on the sadness of it. I just think it's sad that, uh, that I couldn't... Uh, that my mother couldn't draw closer to me because of it, because I have two children who've had uh, 
very difficult um, problems. And to me, a mother embraces these things. They're very hard. It's very, very hard to uh, accept when your child is handicapped. Um, but with your motherly um, instincts, you reach out and you, you go with it. But that's what she wasn't able to do. To her, it was something she had to bat away from her. And um, I actually think I shouldn't condemn her for being that kind of person because not everyone is maternal. And she was a character in her own right. She just wasn't, in my view, a very good mother to me. of the fairest bring blossom the rarest from garden and woodland and hillside and dale our full hearts are swelling our glad voices telling the praise of the loveliest flower of the day well that was a very interesting moment brought back so much to the past and now we're walking towards this great car park which I think used to be the field where the nurses played. It's, it's certainly out beyond the, the built-up parts of the city, although Finglas is hugely built up now compared to what it was in those days. But somehow feel here, with a view of the Dublin mountains and, and, and the wind blowing across, making it feel quite exposed, you know, there's nothing built up around it. It does have a feel of the past about it.